Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, voting to determine whether Canada wins a seat on the United Nations Security Council is underway. The Trudeau government wants to win this seat and Canadian ambassadors have been lobbying international contacts for months. A bleak conclusion from the BC Financial Services Authority and they were pretty explicit about the reasons for it. Strata fees and insurance costs are going to keep going up. And a couple of months ago, President Trump was touting the drug hydroxychloroquine as a potential treatment for COVID-19. Well, that didn't really materialize. A new study out of England shows the steroid dexamethasone can improve survival rates amongst the sickest with the virus. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. As you've been hearing in the news and for the past four years of the campaign, today is a big day in Justin Trudeau's bid to get Canada a UN Security Council seat. Getting a seat on the UN Security Council for Canada is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It's a way for Canada to continue to uh, be influential and have an impact in multilateralism and uh, around the world. So the four-year campaign has come to a close. The voting is set to reach its peak today. Things are a little bit different because of COVID-19. That means that the voting might take a little bit longer. But what exactly is at stake when it comes to this bid to get a Security Council seat? Let's bring in Matthew Fisher, a military journalist. He's also a global news commentator. Matthew, thanks so much for being back on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me on again. What is your take on this is something that the Prime Minister has been very passionate about and has spent a lot of time on the phone trying to get those votes? What's your take on this bid for the UN Security Council seat? Well, I'm afraid I think it's a bit ridiculous. I, I do not understand for the life of me why this is a matter of great import a matter that Canada has spent millions of dollars on, uh, a matter that Canada uh, has staked its reputation on. Uh, We don't deserve a seat. We uh, cut our peacekeeping under the current government. Uh, It was cut under Stephen Harper, then this government cut it more. Humanitarian aid, it was cut under the Stephen Harper government, and then cut more by the, the current government, the Liberal government. And uh, there's no power in this position. It's a two-year temporary post that begins next January. You don't have a veto. The veto is held by the five permanent members of the Security Council, China, the United Kingdom, uh, France, uh, the United States. And and, where does that leave us? I don't know uh, why on earth we want to be part of this. We will have no influence. It cuts to the question of why we don't even have a foreign policy. Canada has not had a declared foreign policy for many, many years. The Conservatives and the Liberals have been neglect, uh, have neglected this uh, for a very long time. I'm totally mystified why this gets so much ink. Stephen Harper wanted this too, 
and Canada didn't get it back in 2010. And now we go through the same rigmarole if we get it. It's sort of like posting rights. I guess we'll feel good. Uh, if we don't get it, then it's, well, why doesn't the world love us? <laughs> Do you think there are also some other uh, consequences? And yesterday on the program, we were talking to one of the family members of uh, a woman and his wife and daughter died in the Ukraine plane crash uh, that, as we know, was was shot out of the sky by Iran. There's been not a lot done in the investigation. Do you think that that, that's kind of an unintended consequence in that Canada can't do anything, can't kind of rattle the cages because if you annoy the wrong country, that could impact your votes? in getting this seat? You're absolutely right. And whether it is Iran or not in that specific vote, I I don't really know. Uh, But there are a whole range of issues, China being the biggest one, that Canada has not been very forceful about because we've not for several years since we've declared our intention to seek this post wanted to offend anyone. So uh, whether it's in Africa, and it puts you in bed to get the votes with a whole slew of dictators and very objectionable people. The United Nations is full of countries that are uh, not democracies whatsoever. And we don't know how much it costs us because, well, we know the campaign costs a couple of billion dollars. What promises does Canada have to make to try to get votes uh, in terms of foreign aid? We know that it's likely we would open an embassy in the South Pacific. I guess all the diplomats will want to serve in Tahiti or Fiji. But even doing that costs a few million dollars. We're going to open embassies in Africa. And those embassies basically are so that countries can come to your door and ask for more money. We have no idea what this costs. Uh, You mentioned China. Here we have a country that is still holding two Canadians. Uh, They've been held for more than 500 days. Is this also something that if this goes ahead, or or, or like you said, we don't know the promises that have been made. We don't know what negotiations have been going on on those phone calls. Are we in a situation where we could then be beholden to a country that, again, is holding two of our citizens? Well, I think China, Jill, is an excellent point, a case in point, because China through its own massive aid program and uh, offering loans in Africa, is thought to control dozens of votes. And that is one reason why many people think Canada is soft-shoeing it on on China. We say it's because of the Meng dispute and China holding the two Michaels. Well, Canada's policy on China was milk toast, was soft several years before this. Uh, it runs away from the China issue. And uh, it used to be the United States controlled huge blocks of votes there. Sometimes the Europeans did. Now China controls more votes than anybody else. And uh, yep. that's how they get on, for example, Are you the ready United to record? Nations Human Rights Council. Okay. And Canada must not so offend China, China the major- too much to get there. So we have Australia taking a strong stance against China, Canada in a very similar position is saying very little. I mean, we couldn't even say the word Taiwan uh, officially, the government, until, what, eight or ten weeks ago. For years, we avoided even mentioning that word as if it was a swear word. How do you see things playing out then as far as Canada is up against is Ireland and Norway? From what I understand, people think Norway has a pretty good chance. But again, other than getting bragging rights, if Canada is to secure this spot, what does it get Canadians? 
Well, to, to answer the first part of your question, first, uh, uh, Norway is considered the leader. Canada is considered the outlier uh, in third place. Uh, Ireland is there. They vote in geographic blocks. So Canada is up against two European countries. Uh, and two go through from the three. Uh, and there are other geographic blocks, but every country in the world gets a vote. Now, what we can actually do there, I don't know. We get to sit in the room with the big boys. But what Canada wants to talk about over and over again are woke policies. They're about uh, ethnic diversity, gender balance, all of these things. These may be very worthwhile policies, and in the Canadian context, they do resonate with a lot of Canadians. But frankly, the United Nations, and in particular the Security Council, it is the motorcycle gang of nations. And a lot of those countries do not care whatsoever about these kind of issues. So uh, Canada can bring them up as much as it wants, but nobody, I promise you, nobody will pay any attention to them. All right, Matthew, we'll leave it there. It's always great to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. Matthew Fisher is a military journalist. He's also a global news commentator. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the BC Financial Services Authority, which is the group that regulates credit unions, insurance, trust companies, pensions, mortgage brokers, they gave their interim report to the BC government yesterday. And this report looks at rising insurance rates, particularly when we're talking about strata councils and strata living condos, high rises, towers. And what did it find? Well, BC condo insurance payers are looking at an average cost increase of about 40% over the past year and it also finds that deductibles have skyrocketed. Let's bring in Rob DePruis, the Director of Consumer and Industry Relations with the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Rob, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning and thanks for having me. Uh, this is something that uh, we've been talking about for months. I looked back, I did a story about this uh, of a Langley condo tower with no uh, claims made against the building. They were seeing a huge increase in their insurance rates. Since then, many more have come forward. What is your response to this report that, yes, says there's a huge problem? There is, and the BC Financial Services Authority report highlights what's behind the current insurance affordability challenges in BC's strata insurance market, and that's rising claims costs. The report is a clear call to action for the BC government to work with stakeholders to address the spiraling claims costs that are driving up these premiums. So how do you address it, though, when some of the buildings that are saying they're seeing these huge increases are buildings that have never had claims? These are buildings that are at higher risk or they're built in a similar way or have similar practices that other buildings that would experience as losses have. What the corporations and the unit owners, they have the ability to create some proactive risk management strategies to help prevent any claims from happening. And if people do that and show that they've taken those actions, do you think that would be enough to stop or at least lower the amount of the increase? Well, that's absolutely a start. We know that rising claims costs are the primary factor driving up these premiums. What we also need is we need the government to update some legislation. We need to strengthen the building codes and amend the land use planning, but we also need to take a real close look at the Strata Property Act. 
we need to make sure, and we've come up with a number of solutions that we'll be sharing with the government, even things like making sure that the strata corporations hold adequate reserve funds and ensure the proper maintenance and repairs, as well as mandatory training of the corporation board members as well. Uh, So in some cases where stratas have decided to not do, say, a depreciation report or they've put off updating the maintenance report, are those things that you think would lead or that do lead to higher insurance costs? That's certainly a part of it. We do know that the B.C. legislation requires strata corporations to obtain these depreciation reports. However, legislation allows exemptions to this requirement. And as a result, many stratas have relied on insurance to fill the gap, which has resulted in an increase in claims and costs. Uh, The report that was issued yesterday uh, takes into account not only high-rises and the types of buildings, but we're really seeing these increases. It also includes duplexes, triplexes, row housing, uh, places that haven't seen nearly the increase in insurance uh, costs. Do you think that somehow skewed the numbers in that for those high-rises and the older buildings, perhaps, the, the, the problem is in fact much worse than what we're seeing in this report? Well, what we do know is that claims are the main driver, and we do see the majority of the claims are related to water damage. And water damage comes in many different ways. In a high-rise building, if there's a water damage on one of the higher levels, it could leak down through many other levels. You also have a lot of bathtubs and sinks and toilets that could be causing water damage as well. So it seems like that's the primary driver, and we are seeing some of these increases, which are are very troubling. So, But if you live in a tower, and I get that, if you're on the 10th floor, you flood your unit, it floods five units below you, that's a huge cost. But is it not also the cost of rebuilding the structure itself in that it's very expensive in Metro Vancouver? So even if you change the building code or changed a bunch of things, the replacement cost is still going to be huge. And is that not what's driving these insurance costs? We are seeing in some jurisdictions that the replacement costs and the rebuild costs are getting higher than the costs of inflation. So that's certainly one of the factors as well that's driving up some of these prices. Uh, You mentioned that you're coming out with some solutions or going to be offering up some solutions. When can owners or, or strata councils expect to see that? We've already come out and spoken with the government We've created a national commercial insurance task force, and we held some meetings in Alberta and in British Columbia in March to try to come up with some of these recommendations. We've shared some of that information already, and in the coming weeks, we're going to be going through this report a lot closer, and we'll be coming out with more information that we can be sharing. All right, we'll leave it there. Rob, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. All right, that is Rob DePruis, Director of Consumer and Industry Relations with the Insurance Bureau of Canada, talking about that report. Uh, things not looking great if you live in a high-rise, if you live in a building that perhaps you've put maintenance on the back burner or you've had claims, uh, insurance claims in the past. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, one thing that's happened during this COVID-19 pandemic, we've heard about a lot of drugs that likely many have not heard of before. It wasn't too long ago, President Donald Trump was saying the drug hydroxychloroquine might be a treatment for COVID-19. But now there is a study that shows another steroid, dexamethasone, might actually improve survival rates among some of the most affected cases. Joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Jason Tetro infectious disease expert and host of the super awesome science show podcast jason great to chat with you this morning what do you think about this i mean we know the hydroxychloroquine uh, the touting from the president never actually uh, amounted to much but mm. this study looks quite promising well i mean if you talk to anybody who's ever dealt with someone who's going through some kind of acute stress whether it be uh, you know a respiratory distress or sepsis, or even cancer, uh, dex, dexamethasone, is definitely one of the drugs that you're going to hear about. And the reason for that is this particular drug actually mimics something that we all produce in our bodies. It's called cortisol. And you may know this, but when we have cortisol in our bodies, we feel stressed and our body starts to get inflamed. So we now know that, you know, when you have those serious conditions that are a result of um, COVID-19, that the sort of cortisol pathway is involved. So DEX comes in and essentially blankets that out, and that really helps to calm down that inflammation and helps you to be able to develop a proper immune response so that you can recover along with whatever drugs that they're giving you, whether it be, uh, you know, the IL-6 inhibitor or the um, remdesivir, et cetera, et cetera. So not a surprise that this is being tried out as a treatment for the more severe cases of people with COVID-19. Well, if you look at the case studies, especially the ones that were sort of coming out in the early days of this, uh, DAX was sort of one of the drugs that was always given if you happen to get into that uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. It's just one of those, you know, always go to. And the beautiful thing is that it really is a jack of all trades. Um, When you look at treatments for a whole variety of different types of problems in the body, uh, DEX always ends up showing up. So how do they know when we hear numbers uh, that have been put out there saying that in using this this steroid for patients, that it has reduced deaths by 35% in -hmm. patients who were on breathing machines? How do we know? know that number? How do they know that without DEX, these patients would have died? Uh, So essentially what happens is um, there are different markers that uh, are developed or, or created in the body while you're going through a fight. And these markers can be identified um, through, you know, blood screening uh, and even when it comes to watching how a patient progresses. And, and if you talk to uh, doctors who are specialized in this, they'll let you know that there are certain um, expectations or outcomes that you expect to see when it comes to using dexamethasone. And so what ends up happening is that we're seeing that hap- uh, occurring with these patients. Now, when you're doing a clinical trial, obviously there's going to have to be that control arm of people who are not getting it. Um, unfortunately, uh, the, the, these trials need to happen, and if, if it's working as well as it seems to, such as we're seeing with the, you know, the trials today, then we stop those trials altogether and we just give everybody in the hopes that we can save them all. What about the negative side effects in that, in my brief reading on this, uh, I heard the, or saw the phrase destruction of joints used a few times. Yeah, well, the problem that you encounter when you're doing um, any kind of corticosteroid treatment is that uh, you're really putting the body in a situation where it can't 
do a lot of repair. Um, so what you're essentially doing uh, is, is creating a blanket over top of a fire. <laughs> basically what you're doing. But then you keep the, if you keep in the blanket there, it's going to be very difficult for the sunlight to help and regrow. So at this point, what you want to do is you want to use that therapy until you know that you're at a stage where you can sort of stop, the virus is cleared, or, or the person has you know, essentially developed a proper immune response. And then you stop the treatment and you try and get them on something that will help them to rebuild over time. And that can sometimes happen through medication. Sometimes it happens through diet and exercise. It really all depends on uh, the condition of the individual. We've seen things, it seems like a lot of things are being fast-tracked in dealing with COVID-19, whether it's trying to mm-hmm. develop a vaccine or find these treatments that, that are working. Like you said, this is kind of a jack-of-all-trades yeah. steroid. So is it safe to say, we'll be watching obviously what happens with this study, but other steroids and other drugs are also being actively tried? Uh, yes. Uh, the, the beautiful thing about dexamethasone is that it does mimic cortisol. So it is the most natural sort of analog that you would want to put into a body and because essentially what it's doing is it's mimicking what your body is already doing it's just preventing it from taking it to the next step now there are other types of steroids that will have different effects and so it wouldn't be surprising to see this being tried but at the end of the day you know we've got an old trusted partner in dex and so the fact is is you know if we can stick with that and it's going to definitely help, then it gives us at least that sort of stopgap while we test other things moving down the road uh, without having to worry about risking lives to, to any great extent. It seems like it's only being used, though, in those extreme cases. It's not as though somebody with mild symptoms, you would take this and in hopes that it would stop it from getting worse. Oh, yeah. You do not want to be taking corticosteroids <laughs> if you have no infection or mild infection. For one, it's not uh, prophylactic. It's not going to help you to prevent infection infection. And if you have a mild uh, or even just sort of a moderate type of infection, you're not really going through that cascade that DEX really stops. Um, You can probably start taking other types of medications. Um, Even some of the -the over-the-counter medications seem to be helping when it comes to mild infections. But at the end of the day, we're really talking when we talk about these clinical trials about people who really are in desperate need because they're in ICU, they're probably on ventilators, and, you know, they're, they're going down a path. And if you've ever read any of the case studies about people who have unfortunately passed away from COVID-19, you can see that that path is both long and it's very, very depressing, but it gives you an idea of what our healthcare workers are up against. So thankfully, you know, the the DEX numbers seem to be good, so at least we have one more weapon in that arsenal. All right, Jason, we'll leave it there. Thank you again so much. It was a pleasure. Take care. Jason Tetro, an infectious disease expert. He's also the host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast.